Welcome to the Vet Podcast with the Vet Gurus, Mark and Brendan. It is the week ending 31st of December 2017. Happy New Year to everybody who's um, listening to this after the New Year. Some of you may be lucky in that you managed to listen to it just on the 31st of December, New Year's Eve. Um, our website contacts are vetgurus.com for those of you who don't know and we love emails. We have a really good email um, this week which we'll talk about in a moment and that's um, vetgurus at gmail.com if you want to contact us, vetgurus at gmail.com and if you really like us, you can even support us and become a Patreon. Um, if you look on our um, vetgurus.com um, site, there's a um, a tab saying help us and you can can become a Patreon of us and that means just throwing us a bit of money um, a dollar a month something like that or maybe a bit more and Mark how is a Patreon site going I know you have looked at it recently how many patrons do we have so far well I think we've just outdone ourselves because we've doubled the number in the last week <laughs> doubled <laughs> uh, hang on let me have a look no, we quadrupled the number and we got from zero to zero. So thank you all for not supporting us. I know you like us, but um, maybe one day we will get a patron. You know, I think what we'll have to do, we'll give a special shout out when we get our first patron. Um, and um, regardless of how much money they give us to help support our podcast, I mean, the aim with that is just to get a bit of money back to help pay for the hosting sites um, and the um, um, and the website we have um, um, which does cost us money. Um, so that would be great if you enjoy it. Maybe think about supporting us at some stage. Um, yeah, so enough about us. Let's talk about what the news is, Mark. And I think the first news story is one for me. And it's a bit of a sad one. It's um, from um, Reuters and the article is London Zoo reopens after a fire that killed an aardvark and some meerkats and London Zoo reopened on Sunday and it was last Sunday, um, a day after a fire that killed an aardvark and likely four meerkats which left staff suffering from smoke inhalation and shock. The zoo said an initial post-mortem showed the aardvark named Misha most likely died from smoke inhalation while sleeping while the four meerkats unaccounted for were presumed to have died. Well, I assume that they will find them at one, some stage. Apparently it was a pretty serious fire because they closed the zoo um, to the public and then they safely reopened the zoo, I think, a day or so later. Um, the fire broke out shortly after 6am on the Saturday in the animal adventure section before spreading to a shop and a cafe at the site in Regent's Park in central London. And London Zoo, which dates back from 1826, said it was too soon to speculate on the cause of the fire. Um, the reason why I have that in there, and I think you... Um, had a comment to me off air about fires at zoos um, is is um, not only the comment you are going to talk about um, is I have been to London Zoo and um, it is a pretty historic zoo and in an, an amazing um, an amazing location there in in Regent's Park. It was many many years ago I went to London Zoo probably. 
let me think, maybe 20 years ago, but um, I'm looking forward to going back there again. And London zoos, I think like most zoos these days, they have reinvented themselves and um, um, gone from all those wire cages with the bars and, and the concrete floors to the more naturalistic um, setups for the animals. And um, good to see that they're doing that sort of thing. I'd be interested to see whether whether that's progressed from the 20 years ago that I went to London Zoo. Um, I think, yeah, you had a comment on the, um, the fires um, at London Zoo, didn't you? I did, I did. I was, um, it, was, it was a really distressing thing. The, um, any time that um, the, the, that we take the responsibility to constrain those animals and then something like this happens, it, I know it deeply affects everyone. I think one of, there's two factors, I think, that are important to consider here. A lot of these traditional zoos are really, you know, they're layer upon layer. They're really old in many parts and um, maybe that contributed to some additional fuel or um, uh, maybe some of the structures underneath were not as stable. Like they said, probably too early to speculate. But the other thing is that, um, as you said, as the environments become more complex and thermal gradients need to be maintained, specialised lighting needs to be installed, um, these things take electricity to run and uh, and it's very easy for there to be shorts and um, and with the uh, leaf litter or whatever that's around um, to make a natural environment you can easily see many of these places developing fires. I know that at um, the Reptile Park um, there was a, a very serious fire a number of years ago and I suspect that um, and I know how much that distressed the people that uh, that work there, um, but I suspect um, it'll be something we see every once in a while as uh, facilities like this um, uh, increasingly have those electricity-focused um, environmental supports for the specialised species they're displaying. And I think part of the difficulty is with some of the smaller zoos, not that London's one of the smaller zoos, and, and wildlife parks is, are often stretched with with funding um, and struggling to get visitors through the park, as we've sort of spoken about um, previously um, on, a, on a previous episode of our podcast. Um, so um, maybe their fire safety protocols for some of the smaller parks as well um, is not that good, and I do know another couple of um, local Australian wildlife parks and, and zoos that have had fires as well. And yeah, it must be very distressing for those keepers to see it having um, um, to, to see it happen. Um, I looking at that um, news story, I was um, um, trying very hard to think about a joke about aardvarks and meerkats and and fires, but I think I'm still recovering from our, your your visit um, to my house um, over Christmas, Mark, um, and, and I'm not quite on ball yet, and I can't um, I can't think of a particular joke that would fit with hard bucks and fires at this time of year. Well, I think did you enjoy it. Did you enjoy your visit? I was going to say we're both we're both um, uh, recovering. It was an excellent visit, and um, and uh, particularly being plied with alcohol and um, generously fed homemade knock of the very highest order um, I still um, I still uh, feel a little bit um, overly sated and and um, and maybe not the um, smartest uh, you know the quickest on my feet and so I'm I'm struggling to find something appropriately humorous as well so well, but um, it was it really was a highlight of our trip to Melbourne to uh, come and visit you and Annie and uh, and um, partake of some local fare although um, we didn't go out for a magic coffee. We did. I was uh, particularly. How many 
coffee machines do you have, Brendan? Four. We we fired one up, and and there was some magic happening. There was some genuine magic. Well, I I, I did try and make one ver- my my particular spin on the magic coffee. So I am glad you enjoyed it, and um, yeah, the the homanyaki. I'm patting myself on the back again. I, I did. I, I did. Um, it is one of the three dishes I think that I do um, produce in the kitchen. My wife does ninety nine percent of the cooking, um, but gnocchi is one of the dishes that I um, can make. So I'm glad that you enjoyed your gnocchi, and it was, I must admit, accompanied by an excellent wine from a veterinary colleague of ours, David Middleton, who owns Mount Mary. Um, winery so it was a, a lovely um, Chardonnay there so a, a shout out to David and his wonderful wines as well I, th- I think maybe one day we should do a podcast just on um, vets and um, um, their their hobbies and, and talk about vets who own wineries and vets who own other businesses as well I speaking of vets who own other businesses Mark I, I don't think I, I mentioned this to you there's a, a huge um, Christmas pudding sitting in my fridge still which i haven't haven't boiled up and that's um made by or or the company is owned by a veterinarian who i used to work part-time with um and um the vet clinic is out um sort of northeastern area of melbourne and the puddings are called raise plum puddings and that they are sold in in coles at one of the big supermarkets here in um, australia um and they're fantastic puddings they're the best puddings in in victoria and my funny thing is um um um, the owner said to me at one stage gee i make much more um with the pudding making um over the three months or so he makes the puddings than he makes in about five or ten years of being a vet um so maybe we're in the wrong business mark um look if we if we were in it for the money we wouldn't be doing it because um it is it's uh the effort we put in um if we were to put that into puddings or a legal profession or any other thing we would be um we would be much more handsomely recompensed, I reckon. But uh, but it's it's not it's a calling, Brendan. It's not even like it's a choice. We it's something we just have to do. It's calling me to stop doing it. That's what it's calling me. I tell you what, <laughs> um, this time of the year. Um, the second news story is yours, Mark, and I think you want to talk about Christmas, don't you? Um, well, Christmas and the New Year. It's a particularly um, uh, um, an article about um, Christmas and loneliness. Sort of uh, caught my eye, um, and um, and it was particularly interesting because it reflected on um, the way that. Um, people who are isolated and maybe uh, the, all that extra stuff that goes on celebrating family and togetherness really puts a lot of pressure on people who are isolated and there's obvious spikes in um, loneliness and depression at this time of year and lots of people will feel cut off from uh, what um, you know that Christmas spirit um, but dogs seemed uh, the focus of this article and um, and just the article highlights the the way that dogs um, play a role in reducing the feelings of isolation and improve people's self-worth, in particular the way they facilitate uh, connections between people. Um, and I thought um, this really speaks to, you know, much more of a of the nature of Christmas than a lot of the ads I see on TV, extolling consumerism. Um, uh, this, uh, the, the uh, 
the role that dogs play in um, in helping people to get over um, some of the negative things that might happen at this year, this time of year. I think it's a, a really um, important um, thing. It's a feel good story, isn't it? it? It's a bit like the pet pets as therapy, which we um, have discussed off air with that. And um, it's not just dogs that provide pets as therapy. We have, we have a very good client who um, has a rescue um, centre for guinea pigs and, and provides guinea pigs um, as pets as therapy for for abused children um, as part of their um, rehab. So, um, and it seems that the the kids, the children respond really well to, to, to opening up and um, chatting to the, the therapist when, you know, they get to sit and cuddle a, a guinea pig. And the same thing happens, doesn't it, with those dogs as, as therapy in, um, in places like um, prisons um, where, where they're increasingly used in, in those sorts of environments as well. So, and yeah, it is... A, yeah, I was ahead. going to say we've been involved in a couple of situations with um, uh, autism spectrum disorder kids, and um, it is a, a, a fascinating thing to see how um, how dogs will um, play a role in facilitating them calming down and communicating with the people around them. So, um, as uh, it is a feel good story, and Christmas often makes us um, focus on those less fortunate than ourselves. And it's great that um, our companion animals play a role in lessening the the things they have to go through. And speaking of feel good stories, the USA uh, today reported that a pit bull attack killed a woman and injured a man on Christmas Eve. Um, so dragging us down again here. Um, here we go. A pair of pit bulls killed a woman and injured her husband on Christmas Eve at their Kentucky home in the USA. The Sheriff's Department said Johnny Saylor, sounds a bit like a, 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 a made-up name, doesn't it, um, was searching for his wife who often wakes up before him after he awoke on Sunday, he stepped out onto the front porch where the dogs attacked him and tried to pull him to the ground. The dogs released him and his brother came out and shouted at the animals and he then went and retrieved a twenty-two caliber pistol from inside his house, as you do have in America, don't you, um, and went back outside where he shot one of the dogs in the chest as it jumped at him and the dog ran away from the scene. He found his wife lying on the ground in front of the house and the second pit bull was nearby. So the husband shot and killed the dog, the sheriff's department said. They're still trying to find the injured pit bull that was originally shot and um, the uh, uh, emergency services responded to the scene um, and he was taken to the hospital where he was treated for injuries to his arm and head. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, his... Um, his um, wife um, was killed by um, one or both of those dogs attacking her. Um, and the postscript on that is the owner of the dogs, um, Johnny Dale Langford, has been in the local detention centre after being charged with domestic violence and unlawful imprisonment and now faces another charge of harbouring a vicious animal, the Sheriff's Department said. So... Why did I put that story in here? I think it was, well, being careful about being careful about animals and, and um, um, you know, have you seen many in practice, do you see many um, dogs that you truly believe are, uh, you know, extremely aggressive dogs that, that, that are just crazy dogs that, that shouldn't be with us, that are just too much of a threat to to even vets who, who may, may want to try and um, 
who should be able to manage them or handle them better than potentially um, the lay person. Yeah, have you seen many? Well, I think it's it's a um, a really interesting question, and uh, we have taken the time to um, sort of make a little bit of an estimate of the the uh, the number of dogs that. We've seen in total, um, uh, since I estimate that something of the order of sixteen or 17,000 dogs since I graduated. Um, and of those, there's a handful who um, probably, I don't know, maybe a couple of dozen who were dangerous, but they were dangerous because they were highly anxious or fearful. And I reckon out of that um, uh, 17,000, there's probably only two dogs that I can recall who were who were who were just malicious, nasty animals that um, um, maybe had, you know, one of those um, um, uh, mental disorders that, um, but they were they were dangerous dogs, um, and I suppose they're good odds, you know, if if uh, the vast majority of seventeen thousand are handleable, that's great, but I do think um, it raises two other interesting points, Brendan. The first one is that um, that uh, this uh, the article mentions the pit bulls and um, that raises in my mind the argument in Australia about breed specific legislation, breed specific prohibition, um, which I I understand why people see that as a relatively simplistic response. But um, as we've discussed off air, the the, our, uh, the professional, the special interest group of the AVA who deals with behaviour is fairly vigorous in their suggestion that um, that uh, um, Breed-specific legislation is uh, counterproductive and um, probably doesn't do anything to lessen the likelihood of a problem. And the other thing that jumps to my mind is that um, we we are so we are so lucky to have um, dogs as companion animals, and they um, give us, you know, like I said, the odds two out of uh, seventeen thousand. Um, the we become so used to them being um, compliant and. Our friends that um, we don't realise um, that that they are large and powerful animals who, if they take a, a, a decision to um, to attack us, then the results can be horrendous and, um, as in this case, life threatening or even life ending. So I think they're they're important points to ponder um, and. Uh, and yeah, I, I I put that in the. I would normally I was going to say put that in the basket of um, something that uh, is likely to happen only in America. But I know that all around the world there's uh, uh, examples of dogs, companion dogs, attacking and killing people. So we won't put that one in the only in America basket. Yes, and I I think you've covered the other point that I was going to raise and that's the whole breed specific thing and labeling that particular breeds are are an issue or a problem and and um you know the other debate that we have here in australia with the breed um, specific legislation is defining what is a particular breed so what is a pit bull or what is not a pit bull um i haven't got run the numbers and 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 worked out how many dogs i've seen over the years and and how many of them are, are truly dogs that i would if they came in tomorrow, um, think about euthanizing them straight away because they were just incredibly aggressive dogs. But um, I, off the top of my head, I can only really think of one that um, that that um, there's probably is more. But I think you said two, so pr- probably pretty close to you. And that was a that was a German Shepherd um, very early on in my career, um, probably my first year or two of, of after graduating, and. 
I forget what the German Shepherd came in the consultation for with the owner, and the owner um, had it on a metal chain, um, and he was he was being pretty vigorous with restraining it. And I think um, once he started talking to me about whatever the issue was, he brought the the dog in for. He he relaxed with the hold. He had a very close hold on on the chain. Um, and and the shepherd just literally took a running leap at me from the other cross, um, across the consultation room. It was like something out of a movie, and 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 he it was only stopped because the length of the chain. And he was about um, thirty centimeters from my face um, when the chain finally became taut. Um, so, you know, that's that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head, and that was just a crazy dog. I couldn't get near it, um, you know. And that one, oh, no, it was that probably. One. That one would definitely stick in your mind. But you were telling me off air, Brendan, that you'd done some work with some of the the um, dogs that are trained by the the uh, police. Um, and so- oh yes, yes. So at, at one stage, I was working part time at a vet clinic where they they did the veterinary work for the um, police dogs. And there was there's several types of police dogs. There is the sniffer dogs, which um, self-explanatory there but even within that group of dogs you have certain um, a particular dog for instance that might um, be good at sniffing out marijuana and another dog that would be um, trained to sniff out cocaine um, so they're pretty specific I think as far as which particular drugs they may they may sniff out and they're pretty placid dogs and a lot of them were the obvious ones that you may think they are they were you know be- beagle type dogs and, and, and those sort of smaller dogs um, and then the other two groups I can remember yeah are the, the general purpose dogs and they're often um, German shepherds um, and they would be used for general p- patrols and, and, and uh, um, around the city areas and, and for um, crowd control um, at, at events and um, um, protests and that but but the ones that yeah were, were, were extremely difficult to deal with dogs were the ones they called the siege dogs um, so they were the dogs that if there was a, a siege happening in, in a house and somebody was um, holed up in a house with, with a firearm or, or, or even just with a, with a knife or didn't want to come out, um, they would just send the siege dog in there. And these siege dogs were very scary dogs. Um, I couldn't get near them even for doing a simple one-minute jab for a vaccination. An annual, an annual checkup with them would be um, looking at them from afar. The handler, who was a police person, the policeman usually, um, would would struggle to hold the dog because these dogs were specifically trained to attack people and, and they were wound up so tight that um, even when they, that the owner was trying to tell them to slow down and don't, don't bite Brendan's um, jugular, um, it would still try and do that. So, um, yeah, and these were big burly policemen um, that were, were handling these siege dogs and they lived with these siege dogs. The siege dogs went home at the end of the shift um, and lived with them, but they were pretty scary dogs. But they, you know, I, I think it, sh- it shows you how um, how much um, the influence of, of training um, goes into them because they specifically would bait them and train them to, to attack people. Um, so, yeah, so that's the um, that's my experience with the police dogs. Um, the next news story is yours, Mark, isn't it about ferrets? It is, and and every time I do see a story on Science Daily about ferrets, it does uh, pique my interest. Um, and uh, this one was one that examined um, the genetic diversity 
um, uh, in ferrets. It's uh, really, um, it's probably a thing that um, that I've thought about myself, given the the uh, frequency with which we see particular diseases um, and the approximate life expectancy, um, and also knowing the history that that of um, the relatively uh, low numbers of ferrets that may have started um, acting as founder stock in our country, maybe um, in other countries as well. It was a really interesting article to peruse, and um, the uh, the the key. Uh, uh, central part of the article talked about sampling 765 ferrets from 11 countries, um, and uh, and they were particularly looking at um, genetic markers, which would give them clues about inbreeding. Um, and their conclusion, not entirely unsurprising, I suppose, um, was that uh, um, particularly in uh, North America and Australia, New Zealand and Canada, there was extremely low genetic diversity, whereas the ferrets in Europe uh, definitely had a higher genetic diversity as a result of periodic hybridisation with their wild polecat ancestors, um, and well, not specifically the ancestors, but you know the the wild polecats currently, you know. In the wild now, um, and and uh, and so those little um, reintroductions of the broader group of genes to the captive population has ensured that those uh, ferrets in Europe have that higher genetic diversity. Um, but uh, even those ferrets uh, had lo much lower genetic diversity than their wild ancestors. And it probably also explains uh, that uh, narrow genetic diversity probably explains some of the those common diseases, the uh, cancers, the adrenal adenomas, the, um, the uh, insulinomas that we see, and probably also leads us to suspect that um, there's, you know, there is slightly the, the the gene pool in a, the small gene pool in Australia is probably different to um, the small gene pool in Canada or North America, and that might explain why we there are some um, diseases that uh, that we see here that we don't necessarily hear about as we look at the American literature or listen to the stories online from our American colleagues. Yes, and I and I think it also follow up the follow-on from that is that, that we need to be really careful about interpreting um, the, uh, the differences within these species uh, between countries so if we look at the ferrets in Australia and compare them with the ferrets in Europe or, or the USA um, that we could almost call them a, a, a subspecies I suppose so we have to be a little bit careful when we interpret in things like clinical pathology um, and reference ranges that are, are often often um, um, referenced just on one particular um, group of ferrets in in a particular um, country for instance I think most of the ferret clinpath normals may be from the USA um, and we should in Australia we should be um, taking 20 50 100 ferrets and 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 working out our our reference ranges for our clinical pathology for our Australian ferrets because there's a pretty good chance that we will have some variation from the norms with with what we'd see and the same with um same with um I think a lot of the other species um, um, you see a hell of a lot more birds than I do Mark I mean what what what's, what's do you see big differences with, with say, with budgerigars, for instance, that we see as pets in Australia, with with budgies that you may see overseas, um, or you have seen overseas? 
Well, that that uh, calls to mind the whole um, British show budgerigar story. That um, we definitely see a huge difference between that um, selected for strain, um, which for many years didn't return to Australia. So our Avery budgerigars are very reminiscent of, um, you know, just slightly bigger than the wild ones and uh, uh, their feathering patterns very similar. But the, once the birds that were transported to England and became their show budgerigars were selected um, for many generations for heavy feathering and heavier body weight, um, and those birds are completely different and their immunity is completely different. Um, and so we see a completely different set of diseases affect those birds. Um, and they've recently, over the last 30 years, been returned to Australia as Australian, um, the Australian Budgerigar Show societies have sought to import, you know, that perceived um, uh, ideal um, and, uh, and, and have it represented in Australian budgerigar shows. Um, and so we will regularly see budgerigars that have that form, um, the heavier feathering, the heavier body size. They're almost, some of them are almost um, twice the weight of, uh, of our domestic budgerigars and over twice the weight of the, you know, our wild budgerigars probably get in between 25 and 28 grams. And some of these English show budgies are 70 grams. Um, and they definitely, you know, they had a different set of diseases affect each of them. Yes, no. It's um, I think it's really fascinating thing. It's a, it's another group of um, another list of um things we need to do. Um, you know, so I think that's part of the frustration, but also the fun of dealing with unusual pets. If you end up seeing things, and oh, we should do a study on that. We should do a study on this. Um, and you end up with a long list of potential um research projects and as far as i'm concerned they end up being research projects that i write a list of and i rarely end up doing anything about it i think we've both i think we've both got a good list of those and uh yeah maybe one day they'll come to fruition uh, oh we just end up talking about them on our <laughs> podcast that's what we end up doing the next story is for you mark um and that is low altitude skiing can slow down ageing. Um, I'll read this out. I don't think you know much about this one. Um, and it's for you because I know you do like, do like a little bit of skiing. So this relates, and I think this is a, a typical, and this, is, this was from Science Daily as well. Um, um, so the typical sort of news story over the Christmas New Year period when they put a few silly stories, but there was an actual study done in, in Norway um, about this and it relates to Einstein's general theory of relativity, which was um, he, he proposed in, in 1915, um, which explains gravity and space-time, etc. Um, and, yeah, it talks about the perks of being a skier, Mark, so you'll be happy with this. So... I'm just skipping over to one of the paragraphs here in the study there um, um, that was done in Norway, as I said. For a recreational skier slash runner, decades of running and ski training would result in gaining a few nanoseconds over an average Norwegian's lifespan. Assuming that you're, um, oh, this doesn't apply to you. Um, assuming an average recreational skier run or run, runner goes at 12 kilometres per, per hour. I think you go about three kilometres per hour, don't you, Mark? Because you're I was, I, <laughs> I was hoping that the, the title of this article was Low Velocity Skiing and How it, It's Likely to Extend Your Life. But 
Yeah, well, um, reading on further, it says um, you, you, you would gain several nanoseconds, so you would um, slow down aging by well less than one second um, if you did about 5,000 hours of training. Although they do say which is easily achievable in an average lifetime of a Nordic person. So there you go, we're living in the wrong country, Mark. Now, were you telling me that um, that you're about to take up um, carving the powder yourself? It was, well, this wasn't a trigger, was it? No. I, the, the most I've ever done skiing is a, is a very, very small amount of cross-country skiing um, um, in in my youth, <laughs> a long time ago. So, um, and with my dicky knee, um, I don't think I'll be doing too much skiing in the future. But there you go, Mark. I was wondering why you were looking so youthful when you came over to visit me. It's all that skiing you've been doing. You've cut almost half a second off your life with all that skiing there. Although the amount of alcohol you drank, I think you've added another. Um, you've you've taken off another another three weeks. So um, it doesn't quite doesn't quite. Um, um, average out for you unfortunately that's the bad news um the last news item is um one you had there about the 20 hardest to fill jobs in australia what was what was the I, story with that i was really keen to talk about um i found it fascinating to i'm just bringing it up here at the moment too because i've had this last year there's been a you know a pretty good year but they're one of the things that's been a little bit difficult about it for me has been getting staff um we've had a little bit of turnover at work just the normal sort of process nothing acrimonious um but um but it has meant that i've been on the lookout for uh veterinarians to take up um uh uh, positions at work and it's been particularly difficult and then I was interested to see in the Sydney Morning Herald that um, there was an article uh, just earlier in December which listed the 20th the 20 hardest jobs to fill in Australia and the way they measured this was they looked at the percentage of unfilled places after an added bin um, out there in the marketplace for 60 days and veterinarians ranked second out of all the job ads they analyzed um, with uh, more than 42 percent of the jobs uh, unfilled after 60 days of advertising and i wouldn't be surprised if they extended that out to 120 or um, uh, even longer that there still would be a significant percentage of those jobs that aren't filled because geez there's just not that many vets out there looking for work and that's, I think that's the, the conundrum, isn't it? We, we're pushing out more and more veterinary graduates with, with the vet schools that have sprung up over the last 10 or 20 years, um, especially here in Australia. And yet practitioners, um, apart from those inner city practices where I think most people still want to end up working in the first few years of their veterinary careers, um, struggle to um, attract veterinarians. So where are they going, Mark? What are, what are these people doing? Well, as as you well know, I've got a bit of a theory about many things in life, and I definitely have a theory about this. Um, like most of my theories, it's um, it's uh, uh, wrong. Well, wrong and found, <laughs> founded in no evidence, but I'm still happy, happy to espouse it. Um, I think what happens these days is that because um, there's almost uh, you know. Compared to when you and I graduated, there's uh, the best part of another 80 
you know, 80%, nearly double the number of veterinary graduates each year. So you would think that there'd be heaps of them out there. In fact, only a few years ago, um, I was at a, a an AVA meeting and there were vets complaining that the vet schools were pumping out too many graduates and that was going to lower the, you know, the dollar value, the, the wage that could be paid to them because all these new graduates would be clamoring for jobs and would be happy to work for peanuts. Um, but I think what's happened has been that um, the changing nature of work and the changing nature of our profession means that when you and I graduated, you 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 sort of came out, got a full-time job and worked full-time. Well, we're still working full-time um, until you, um, you know, 40 years later, you retire. Um, but I think a lot of the um, more recent graduates, they they you know, work for, um, come out, work full-time for five or six years, take a couple of years off, come back part-time, work for another five or ten years, and then maybe leave the profession altogether using the skills they've acquired, the interpersonal skills, the problem-solving skills, the scientific method. Um, they apply those skills in other areas. Um, so I think that rather than having, you know, one full professional career unit, each graduate is now probably only um, contributing maybe a half or even less of that. Um, that's And there's no, you know, I don't want anyone to think I'm offering judgment about that. I think that each person has to chart their way through their life and do the thing that's most uh, gratifying and satisfying to them. Um, but I think the consequence of that changed perception of the, the you know, the, the way that the profession will fill out the career, the working career of graduates, means that there's just not as many graduates looking for work as there once was. And I think it's probably similar similar in, in other professions as well in that um, people move around these days and it wasn't the, the old you get a job and you stick with that job for the rest of your life, um, which applied with with well with the trades as well as and not just the professions and, and the younger generations. Um, tend to, to move around um, much more as well. And I always remember one of the sayings from um, the late, great um, Professor Jubb, um, who was the Dean of the um, University of Melbourne um, Veterinary Science Faculty. He always used to say, we're, we're training veterinary scientists. We're not training veterinarians. We're not, we're not. Um, and I think that was a, a really um, um clever way of saying um, we're giving you life skills to, to, to potentially work in, in a large area of, of science and not just within the veterinary community. And I, I certainly know graduates from my year who are still working full-time, but they're not working as veterinarians, but they're still in the science um, science um, 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 region. Um, and, um, you know, training up those general skills and those life skills are really important. And, and I think the other big, big change too is that that we're seeing many, many more um, percentage of, of female graduates as well. Um, and as my two girls constantly remind me, um, girls are a lot smarter than boys anyway, which I have to agree with them looking at them and that they're certainly getting much better marks than I ever got at school. Um, so we have um, graduates at a large and I'm sure it would be the same up, up in the um, universities near you, um, many more um, female veterinarians graduating than male, and they'd potentially... And um, it didn't 
Go ahead, mate. I was going to say that it's a. Uh, I I thought much the same as you. I thought the the feminization of the the profession may be playing a role in this. But I've looked at some statistics recently, which, um, uh, you know, once again, tr- uh, trying to lessen the likelihood my my theories are based completely um, absent of any fact. Um, but um, the. The, there is no difference. The current crop of graduates, there's no difference between the patterns of the male graduates and the female graduates. It's a, um, a non, non-gender specific thing. Um, blokes are doing almost the same sort of thing, working for a while, changing, going to teach science or um, maybe work for a drug company in a non-veterinary related field. It's, uh, there's certainly not, the, the feminization of the practice of the profession is, uh, is certainly not a, a contributing factor I'd be very, very um, keen to point out. Yes, interesting so um, and does uh, are you factoring in the the potential that um some of these um female graduates will take time off to have a family as well or no that was you were just looking at um um what they do in that first few years no no it, uh, i think the the uh Definitely, it's the case that those female graduates will take time off to have families. But I, it's interesting that um, male graduates, either families or uh, um, other pursuits, are leading them to have very similar patterns. So, um, I, I uh, the, it was very interesting to me that over the course of um, the you know ten or fifteen years out, those graduates that are at that point now, there's not a significant difference between the blokes and the the uh, women in in terms of um, the amount of time that they spend at the at their workplace um, and the patterns that they have of how long they've worked and how long they haven't, and it's completely different to our cohort, Brendan. Yes, so it's it's um, they finally um, got smart and and think that maybe working crazy hours per week um, for many years is is <laughs> is not very conducive to a to a relaxing lifestyle. So good on them. Um, if if that's what the, the, if that's what they've worked out, I think. Um, if, only, if, now, if only we'd been able to work it out. <laughs> no, we were too dumb to do that. You know, we wouldn't get through. We wouldn't be admitted into the course. These <laughs> um, with the scores they have to get these days. Yeah. So, which um, just quietly um, is a bit scary when when I um, stand up in front of these. Um, um, first-year veterinarians, uh, veterinary students, and I'm standing up giving a lecture to 120 or 150 vet students, and some of them have already done a PhD. Um, <laughs> and I'm there pretending to know what I'm talking about. So I just end up telling a few jokes, um, and then they give, give me a good review um, in my um, back to the faculty, so I get to do the same year after year. So that's my that's my trick of um, staying a part-time lecturer, Mark. There you go. Um so I think that's enough news stories for this um, New Year's Eve or 2018, if you're listening to it after New Year's Eve. Um, we have an email, Mark, and I think I'll read out um, or introduce the email and you can um, get stuck into the content of the email. It's a lovely email from a, a, a veterinary friend of ours from Singapore, Cathy Chan, um, and reading from her email, Dear Brendan and Mark, I thought I would give you a big shout-out from Singapore. It has been about four years since we had you guys down to Singapore 
well, it's up to Singapore from us, isn't it? For the combined conference, and I wanted to let you know that we, do, you do have a mini fan base down here. I have been tuning into the podcast. I am a subscriber! Exclamation mark. Well done, Kathy. Good on you. And I would like to say that I found it very informative and entertaining. It's always on in my drives to and from work, and I have laughed out loud a few times. There you go. Somebody did like one of our jokes um, at some <laughs> stage. Wonder what, wonder what episode number that was, Mark. Um, so she wants to share a story or situation with us since we have been discussing species extinction. So, um, and uh, I'll just jump to the very end, wishing you guys a very Merry Christmas and definitely one day to come back to our sunny island again. Thank you very much, Kathy. So we do love getting emails from our listeners. So remembering the email address is easy to remember, vetgurus at gmail.com. So Mark, do you want to talk about the species that, that Kathy goes on to sort of chat about? And she has left a few really interesting links, which I've put in the show notes at our, our website here. Yeah. And it, it was a, um, a an exciting email to get. I, want, I did want to just point out before I talk about um, the details of Kathy's email, how excited, like literally um, jumping up in the air and dancing around. It was um, it was obviously a highlight of the day for you. So um, I think the more emails that we get, the the happier Brendan will be. So um, I encourage everyone out there listening at the moment to. Jot down a few words and get it to uh, that email address at uh, vetgurus at gmail.com. Kathy was um, – uh, I have sort of felt that we've been a little bit down in our talk about these uh, species that are threatened or endangered or approaching extinction. We've sort of had a little bit of a focus on them over the uh, the podcast that we've done. Um, and Kathy's really – pleased to point out to us that um, there is a species that was thought to be extinct um, and had completely disappeared from the region um, in her country in the 1970s. Um, and uh, in the 1990s, they made a stunning reappearance. The smooth-coated otter um, turned up in the Straits of Malaysia, and, uh, and they've been increasingly, um, you know, just since they've first shown up, they've uh, been continuing continuing to make headway and increase in numbers. They've achieved um, celebrity, celebrity, celebrity status when two families of otters made the Marina Bay area their home. And uh, they um, the key thing about that was that they um, were a wild species that had uh, entered a completely suburban residential area and um, and uh, and they ended up thriving. Um, in the Marina Bay Sands, another another pair set up home in one of the lakes in the middle of the uh, in the parks in the middle of the city, um, where there was uh, um, special work to link up natural and artificial water bodies. Um, and there's even a group that's been set up, and uh, with uh, the link to that group's website, will, uh, Facebook page will be in the show notes. Um, the group Otter Watch has been set up and it's made up of nature enthusiasts, biologists and government representatives and veterinarians and they monitor the behaviour of the population and keep a lookout for their health. Um, so uh, 
this is a classic example of a um, uh, um, uh, and Kathy's really keen to point out that it's an example of a species that's come back largely because of public support and public pressure. Um, the people that uh, um, you know um, have driven the species to become so popular in Singapore, um, they've been a real drive to um, ensure that uh, Everything has been done to maximise the chance the species could get a foothold, and as they have, and then continued to grow. So, so I think that's a. Um, so often we're talking about things that once I've finished talking about them, I have a little tear in my eye. But this time, um, I, I'm. It's just so exciting that um, that this has happened, and it gives us another reason to make sure that we get back to Singapore, see some wildlife, and have another conference there, Brendan. It's it sounds a plan, Mark. Sounds a plan, Mark. Here and, and looking at those um, links, there, and, the, and one of the link links that we have is a um, a video of these um, otters in Singapore. You can see why the locals um, really latched onto them and wanted to um, follow their progress and, and the recovery on them because they are really cute, aren't they? When you see the pictures of them and and the videos on them, which which. Um, not putting a downer on it, but putting a downer on it um, is um, my comment is always that it's really easy to get funding for really nice, cute animals. And if, if, if it was a really ugly toad, for instance, that they might struggle to get a following for them. But um, it is good to see. And and um, it's that connection with nature thing. Um, I think it's important to... Um, Try and keep encouraging the, the 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 general population to have that connection with nature, and and um, regardless of what species it is, rather than because no matter how many Attenborough videos you watch and Attenborough, you know, Planet Earth shows you watch and they're fantastic, it does not make up for seeing an animal up close, does it? Um, so that's, I think, one of the main reasons why why zoos are still flourishing worldwide is it's that, that connection with with the with the individual animals. So when you do go to a zoo and, and you look up in the air and you see that giraffe and you look at it and you think, gee, that is an amazing animal, um, um, you you won't get that perspective unless you actually see the animal up close. So I suppose that's one, one, one pro for why um, zoos should exist, isn't it, Mark? Um, not that I'm saying zoos should or shouldn't exist, but um, there's that disconnection, isn't there, with nature? Um, you were going to say something. I, think. Oh, I was just going to uh, echo what you were saying. I, I think there is an argument for zoos to exist, but I think that, um, as you said, they've really got to. Um, justify their existence and and celebrating and encouraging that connection with nature because you can't protect something that you don't know and you don't love um, and it's only when you know you can smell and uh, feel and um, and measure the size with your own eyes um, that you can develop the affection for these animals and if you don't have it then you don't care so I, I think there is a strong role for that connection um, to be carried out by zoos and uh, I think it, it's you know a prior, you listen to the people at, who work at zoos and it's one of their main priorities these days to ensure that um, that they foster that connection with the gen for the general public with the wildlife that they're in charge of. Yes, and it it um, it just reminds me. Um, you, you need to smell the nappy of your own child before you can really appreciate how much you love your own children, <laughs> don't you, Mark? Um, yeah, um, not that ours are um, 
doing that anymore <laughs> um, in their in their late teens and early twenties. But um, um, yeah, sometimes you need to experience it in order to experience it, don't you? Um, well, I think we should move on to just a little general discussion of our thoughts on. Um, 2017, because here we are at the end of 2017, moving into 2018. And is there anything you want to say, Mark, about any predictions, for instance, for 2018 for the veterinary community or, or happenings in this year that you were upset about? Or, or, or I'm sure you've got a theory on something that you can <laughs> share with me. <laughs> well, I, um, I think that um, I've got a couple of points I was um, I was keen to make. The first one was that um, that I think I'm really excited uh, over over the last 12 months to uh, to just see how far we've come. You know, we were talking earlier about the the way that new graduates are so much more conscious of the work-life balance and how they um change their life to make sure that they can maintain those things. And I, over the last 12 months, the mentoring uh, systems that have been put in place, the uh, increasing number of support systems that are available to uh, veterinarians, the connections we have so that we're not as isolated, um, that they're, they're, I think they are making a significant difference on the ground. And I, and my prediction in that regard for the uh, the next few years is that um, there will be a lot more refinement of those services and, uh, and there'll be a lot more acceptance of them so that um, people who need them feel much more comfortable just you know, calling up and um, and uh, making whatever arrangements they need to maintain their own mental health. Um, I know that I would do it um, at the drop of a hat, seeing the the uh, consequences of not doing it. Um, so I uh, I reckon that's a trend we'll see in the coming years, and it's something I've been proud of over the last um, uh, to see it happen over the last year. Yeah, I think that's. But, sorry, budding in there. Um, I think that's fantastic, that whole graduate mentoring um, aspect. And um, hello to my mentee, Madeline. Um, it's your shout for lunch next time. Thank you very much. Um, we, um, gee, I wish I had it when I just graduated because those first few years got pretty dark um, without much support from anybody to lean on. And um, when... When I graduated, we only had 46 of my year that graduated and we dispersed all over Australia and some even um, internationally. So there even weren't many um, colleagues um, who graduated that I could contact um, readily or quickly if I, if I had problems with cases or just wanted to have a chat or a coffee or discuss life with them. So those formal mentee-mentor programs that are wonderful, I think. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to try and help out with that. And I, th I think most of the most of the countries have caught on with that. We're probably, I don't, we're certainly not the first country to do it here in Australia. Um, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad that the AVA has um, really jumped on board with it and, and is supporting that. So it's fantastic, yeah. Um, but one one thing I tend to try and do at the end of the year is try and predict what sort of species or pets will be popular, Mark, um, in the coming year, and um, or what has been um, popular, and and probably probably looking ha having a little think and, and looking at what has um, increased in popularity in, in my practice anyway, and and what I think will happen next year is an increase in. Um, 
number of um, bunny rabbits. Um, you know, our rabbit our rabbit clients have, have really taken off over the last um, few years, um, and I've grown to love my rabbit medicine. Even though initially I was spending more time on reptile medicine, but um, we see a lot of rabbits in my practice, um, and I expect that 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 will continue to happen over the next year or so. So I can see the rabbits increasing in my practice. Um, decreasing wise, um, I think cats, yeah, um, we're probably seeing a little less number of uh, percentage-wise of cats in our practice. Still seeing a reasonable amount of dogs, um, but probably less number of cats. Um, so off the top of my head, there's sort of two things I'm thinking about decreasing or increasing as far as species go. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on um, what you may see more of species-wise next or breed-wise. Um, you know, maybe you should talk about breeds that are, are fading away into the distance and, and breeds that are um, getting becoming more popular. Mark. Well, before I talk about those, I'm interested in just um, your opinion about um, the the whole cat story. We've um, we've definitely noticed a drop off in the number of cats that are that were coming to the hospital, and we've um, done a little bit of. Um, uh, um, work trying to set up the hospital so it's more cat friendly that we have a, a consult room that has the felly way going all the time that we work hard to separate the cats and the dogs we um, use social media to contact our cat owners and I think all those things have definitely um, returned the proportion of cats to what it once was um, and I don't think there's a drop-off in the number of people owning cats I just think there's a drop-off in the number of people who want to bring them to their veterinary to a veterinary hospital do you think there's a reason for that Brendan no idea but I think you've your theory is spot on there. I think I th I don't think there's less cats. I just think less cats are being yeah brought into the clinic. So why let is me, that let happening? Me, let me tell you my theory. Uh, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> my <you> theory. <laughs> my theory is that it's the um, a reflection of the uh, triennial vaccine story. I think that people always uh, hated taking their cat to the vet, um, and despite our our you know, insistence that it was for the annual health exam, um, uh, people really were only bringing their cats in to get their vaccines. Um, and once the necessity for that has dropped off with the um, development of multi-year vaccines, um, people just think, oh, well, they're vaccinated. I'm not going to put up with the cat meowing at such a pitch that it shatters some of the bones in my leg for the whole drive into the veterinary hospital. I'm just not going to have that piercing noise in my ear. I'm just going to wait till next year when they need their vaccine. Um, so that's my theory. Yes, yes. Well, I'm sure it could be. It could be correct. Um, the the difficulty there is 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 trying to convince them about preventative health um, and. It's probably the opposite, isn't it, with our unusual pets and that most of the time we spend with the unusual pets is, is talking about preventative health and trying to stop these diseases happening um, before they feed them the wrong diet or, or, or house them incorrectly. Um, and we spend a lot of time educating our clients on that sort of things. And I think our exotic or our unusual pet owners are, are pretty keyed up about that and they're quite willing to bring them in for regular checkups or, in, or we, we find that the case. Whereas, yeah, the maybe the dog or the cat owners are, are just thinking, gee, I only need the injection um, every three years for my cat and will only take our cat to the vet if it's fire brigade things, it's broken a leg or it's um, 
has snake bite or something else rather than um, they don't see the value. Maybe we're not, not promoting the value value of the preventative health um, properly. So look, in the long run, if we, we monitor your cat and we can pick up early, early signs of illness and we can do... Once it gets um, to a certain age, we think about doing um, blood screens. Um, we, we, we can help um, detect and treat these conditions and, and help your cat live a hell of a lot longer than if we just um, ignored it and um, only brought it in every three years. I know we're approaching the end of our allotted time, um, but I, there was one other thing I was going to ask your opinion on because um, having some of our offline discussions, I formed the opinion that this is one of those rare differences between Brendan and Mark, um, and that is that um, at our practice, we've definitely seen a, um, a drop-off in the, the number of um, reptiles presented. So um, we, particularly when the law changed in New South Wales and uh, it was became legal to keep reptiles as pets, we, we you know, I would have um, half a week spent with um, reptile consults only. Um, and that definitely has dropped off so that um, we still do one or two a day, but the total number of reptile consults has, uh, has dropped off. I think the um, the novelty maybe has worn off in New South Wales and the uh, the cost of electricity is, um, has become uh, a significant concern for many people that have even moderate size collections. So, but in talking to you, that you haven't noticed the same pattern in Victoria, even though it's colder down there, and you're going to have to you're, <laughs> yes. you're going to have to use more electricity. Yes, um, we see, still see a lot of reptile owners, and, and probably the vast majority of 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 the reason why we have increased numbers of reptile um, clients is new owners. So, and these are um, people who have not owned a reptile before, so they go out and buy that first um, reptile that may be the turtle or the bearded dragon, um, the lizard or the turtle, occasionally the snakes as well. But um, uh, uh, an increase in percentage of new reptile owners is, is what's what seems to be pushing it and and why that's the case um yeah may, maybe that the, there still is that novelty of gee let's try a new type of species as a pet and let's go for a reptile i don't know um, um but that, that i think that's where the majority of the increased um numbers coming through our vet clinic are those new clients um, um i haven't crunched numbers on on the current clients um to to say whether or not they're dropping off or remaining steady as far as revisits go and and regular health checks with them but we certainly do encourage it and and you know just 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 thinking about clients I've seen over the last um, few months, um, um, we are. Um, I, I don't think it particularly has dropped off as far as the, the long-term reptile clients. Yeah, so maybe it is a bit of a regional difference for some particular way. Maybe, um, maybe all the good Melbourne coffee is is keeping people awake, and they need something to do um, late at night when they can't sleep. So they um, set up the reptile enclosure and, and stare at their snake. Um, maybe that's what's happening, Mark. I don't know. It's it's a theory. It's a theory. <laughs> no one here is as good as any of your theories, Mark. That's for sure. You're, you're 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 a thinker, Mark. You're a thinker, <laughs> um, and um, I'm just I'm just a thunker. Um, I've just thunk it. Um, 
So, I th- yeah, I think we should um, finish here because, um, well, it's almost New Year's um, Day, isn't it, um, by the look of the time here. So we, we should stop so we can both get back to our respective families and um, spend a, a few hours that are left um, in 2017 um, maybe reminiscing, maybe having a, a quiet drink or so or, or imbibing in whatever food or beverage you, you particularly like. And... Um, um, I'm certainly looking forward to 2018 and I hope um, our podcast goes well beyond 2018. So thanks to all our listeners and our new subscribers and um, keep on coming. Um, I think the number of um, the number of, let me just quickly jump on here and have a look at the number of countries of subscribers. We have 21 countries. Um, so I'll do a shout out today to um, Netherlands. Um, so we have a subscriber in the Netherlands. I don't know what area of the Netherlands. It doesn't tell us, but um, hello to our subscriber. It's one subscriber, but look at this, in the Netherlands. So hello to you. And, um, yeah, make sure you tell your friends um, about our podcast, um, vetgurus.com, and send me an email. So as Mark said, I'll jump up and down, not that I did that i was i was happy but i probably wasn't quite as excited as you said mark but um it was very good to hear from kathy so yeah we want to hear from you um and mention it to your veterinary college and your veterinary nurses technicians and um all the best for the new year i hope everybody has a safe and happy um new year's eve or new year's day and um maybe we'll catch up with you in 2018 at a conference otherwise um we'll talk to you soon thanks for listening